welcome to Major Mondays on a Tuesday. Uh, today we're going to be talking about workers' comp versus PIP, interplay between comp and no fault in New York and New Jersey. And clicking back in here, hello, everyone should be able to see me now. As usual, this is a live question and answer, so feel free to post your questions in the little uh, go to webinar box, and if we have any questions at the conclusion, we'll jump right into them. So, what is PIP for the uninitiated? So uh, personal injury protection benefits, AKA no fault benefits, you might hear them referred to as either, they're kind of used interchangeably. Um, it provides coverage for economic loss arising out of a motor vehicle accident, example, loss of earnings, uh, medical treatment, things of that nature. In both New York and New Jersey, workers' comp is primary to PIP, and that's pretty much the case uniformly across the country, I think you're gonna discover. Um, what does that mean? It means in a work-related motor vehicle accident, the comp carrier is the one that should be paying for medical treatment and loss of earnings before the no-fault carrier would ever be on the hook. No-fault can sometimes kick in the deficit. For instance, if the comp rate is you know, not higher than $2,000 a month, um, but you know that situation is quite rare. Um, the result is that in a work-related motor vehicle accident, workers' compensation is typically paid in lieu of PIP. So just give a little context here on both no-fault statutes. So New York's no-fault law comes from Article 51 of the insurance law and regulation number 68, which is uh, 11 New York Code Rules and Regulations 65. What it provides for is up to 50,000 in first-party benefits for New York motor vehicle accidents. Um, New Jersey, conversely, has this uh, oddly entitled verbal threshold. That comes from the Automobile Insurance Cost Reduction Act. Um, what that does is that it imposes a limitation on the right to sue for a motor vehicle accident in exchange for guaranteed access to PIP. We're going to go into the nuances of these in a second, so just hang in there with me. So let's talk about the definition of PIP in New York, because I kind of touched on it two slides ago. So an eligible recipient recovers basic economic loss without regard to fault, no need to show negligence or a serious injury. The idea being, you know, the legislature and to avoid docket overload in the courts in New York, uh, if you get hurt in a motor vehicle accident, they don't want insurance carriers duking it out over who should be on the hook. They want the hurt person getting medical treatment and lost earnings without an issue. Insurance law 5102 um, is combined medical treatment, lost earnings, and other expenses of $50,000 or less. That is the definition of basic economic loss. Um, and first party benefits is defined as basic economic loss, less uh, certain deductions and offsets that are laid out in the statute. Um, so there are a couple limitations on the definition of basic economic loss. So medical treatment must be necessary and ascertainable within the first year that further treatment expenses may be incurred. Uh, what does that boil down to? Well, on, if there is no treatment in the first year at all, uh, we would argue in the workers' comp case that medical is not being paid in lieu of first-party benefits because it wasn't ascertainable within the first year following the accident that further treatment may be required. The guy didn't treat at all. Now, if you're asking yourself, has this ever come up? The answer is probably not. Um, the way it generally works with uh, workers' comp uh, lien and subrogation rights and uh, priority of payment issues is that Medical in a motor vehicle accident case is usually going to be the comp carrier's problem up to the full 50K. Um, indemnity is another story. Indemnity is uh, only up to $2,000 per month for the first three years following the accident. So um, I mentioned, you know, uh, no fault might kick in the deficit if, you know, say the person, uh, the, the worker's comp 
total disability rate is inadequate to um, compensate the claimant and we're under ten or we're under two thousand dollars a month um, no fault might actually end up kicking in the deficit there to bring it up to the maximum available of two thousand uh, that is also something of a rare situation um, why does that matter though it helps in uh, calculating when we reach the 50k threshold there is nothing and I want to be very clear about this there is nothing in any portion of the law that says the workers' comp carrier must pay $50,000 before it has lien rights uh, or Section 29 rights at all. And uh, I will just reiterate, there is nothing in the law that says we do not have rights until we pay $50,000. What it actually says is that we do not have a lien on amounts paid in lieu of first-party benefits, which, but for the provisions of this article, another insurance carrier would otherwise have been obligated to pay. In other words, we don't have a lien on stuff that falls into the definition of basic economic loss. If you pay $900 a month or $900 a week in indemnity benefits, it's $3,600 a month. $2,000 of that is paid in lieu of first party benefits, $1,600 of it isn't. So even if you had yet to get to 50K, you'd be asserting a lien on the $1,600. You'd expect to get two thirds of that back from a third party settlement. Same goes for credit and offset rights. If you're paying over $2,000 per month and you're carrying a third-party settlement credit forward, whether or not um, you've reached the 50K threshold, we would be paying at the reduced burns rate for the amount beyond the 2,000. Once you reach the 50K, uh, the, you know, whether or not it's over 2,000 or paid more than three years out really doesn't matter. Um, the three-year time limitation is just interesting because uh, every LWAC classification on earth is going to uh, last longer than the three years. It's, uh, what, 156 weeks? So um, we are almost certainly, if it's a low-wage earner that's headed for an LWAC classification, we are almost certainly going to get to the three-year mark before that award is fully paid out. In that case, whether or not you've gotten to 50K, you would start taking offset rights against the uh, ongoing LWAC the moment you hit the three-year mark. So, Interaction with the workers' comp law. So workers' comp is primary to no fault and the carrier pays in lieu of first party benefits for basic economic loss, which we just kind of talked about a little bit. This also means we have no lien or subrogation rights on the first 50,000 paid in workers' comp benefits. There are exceptions to this. Some of these we just discussed. Um, section 29, 1A and 2A, the carrier shall not have a lien for amounts paid in lieu of first party benefits. Again, the, the $50,000 number is nowhere in Section 291A. Um, and we cannot sue for the first 50,000 except for loss transfer under Insurance Law 5105. So Section 291A, if you're wondering why this, why this is a thing, it was enacted as an analog to Insurance Law 5104. Insurance Law 5104, you can see as I have on the bottom right there, says you can't sue for the first 50,000 in basic economic loss. Uh, and you cannot sue for non-economic loss unless you have a qualifying serious injury as defined in Insurance Law 5102. Um, this was enacted to, to avoid, you know, ticky-tacky, petty litigation in New York courts uh, where somebody gets an offender bender, really they only have $5,000 in damages. It's totally covered by no fault. Why are you suing? Um, so there's this prohibition on suing for the first 50K paid in basic economic loss, unless you're a carrier seeking loss transfer. What was happening was you had workers' comp claimants that were getting injured in motor vehicle accidents in the state of New York, and then having to repay that, or at least repay two thirds of that 50,000 when they settled their third party action against the at-fault driver. So there was this weird anomalous situation where if you just so happen to be 
injured in a motor vehicle accident while you were working, you were the only people in the state of New York that were not getting the 50,000 available and no fault coverage. The way the court phrased it was that, you know, the claimants were in essence becoming a self-insurer for that first 50K. Theoretically, it should be available to them. If the no-fault carrier paid it, they would not have had a lien, thanks to Insurance Law 5104. Um, so, you know, why isn't the comp carrier able to assert a lien um, just because this happened in a work-related accident? So, let the legislature eventually amends Section 291A to avoid claimants being self-insurers for that first 50K. Um, the end result here is that colloquially in the industry, the understanding is we do not have a lien until we reach the 50K threshold. But as we mentioned, that is not actually a thing. There are other exceptions to it too, whether the accident arose from the use or operation of a motor vehicle. For instance, if you slip and fall inside of a motor vehicle, like inside of a box truck that has ice on the ground, that's a, basically a premises liability claim. That's not using a truck as a motor vehicle. If you were loading or unloading it, then you start to get into the category of, well, maybe, but those usually end up being litigated issues. Um, so insurance law 5104 says we can't sue for the first 50K and cannot seek non-economic loss unless there's a qualifying serious injury. Um, the serious injury threshold is usually going to be satisfied just by having some kind of a fracture, uh, but the injuries are specifically laid out in insurance law 5102D. So we went a little too far. So we touched on this already, but must we pay 50K before we have rights under section 29? No, uh, absolutely not. Every plaintiff's personal injury attorney, or at least 99% of them that you talk to, are going to tell you the opposite. If you paid less than $50,000, uh, they are going to assume they can settle their case without having to reimburse the lien. Some of them that are truly irresponsible also assume that means they don't need your consent to settle. There's a case on this exact topic uh, where the claimant was found to have waived the right to future comp because they failed to get the carrier's consent to settle under 29.5 uh, under the mistaken assumption that consent was not required because reimbursement wasn't owed because the carrier hadn't paid over 50. So this is legally incorrect. The 50K carve out to our section 29 rights is only for amounts paid in lieu of first party benefits which another carrier would otherwise have been obligated to pay. That is how it is worded in the statute. Uh, the reason I'm pointing out that wording, we're gonna to get to in a second with a New York specific situation. If there's no treatment in the first year, treatment thereafter is not in lieu of first party benefits. Similarly, as we talked about, indemnity paid over 2K per month or paid more than three years after the accident is also not in lieu of first party benefits. But what about a section 32 settlement? So, um, currently unsettled area of the law, we actually have a case that is in litigation on this exact topic, for which I attended a hearing this very morning. Um, I would have put a suit on anyway for the webinar, but this suit was actually to go to court this morning. Um, so, what about a Section 32 settlement? So, if you work in, or if you uh, administer claims in the state of New York, uh, you know a Section 32 is actually referred to as a waiver agreement. It is a surrender of the right to future comp in exchange for a lump sum upfront. Um, well, is that reimbursing any period of lost time? Is a, if we're paying $50,000 on a section 32, is that reimbursing the claimant for time they missed from work? No, because that's what temporary disability is for. 
Is it paying back a medical provider that you know the claimant um, treated with? They haven't gotten paid for it. Maybe they ex had the claimant execute an assignment of benefits that they could recover under the policy. Uh, you know, they submit all of the proper forms. You know, the C4 or in uh, the no fault world, the uh, NF2 or NF3 verification of treatment form. Um, you know, is this reimbursing a medical provider when we pay a Section 32? Is any portion of that allocated? towards paying outstanding medical bills. No. Um, so how is this indemnity up to 2K per month for not more than three years? Or how is this necessary medical treatment? Um, here's the other language that's really important. No other insurer is obligated to pay it. Remember we talked about the uh, definition of the carve out under 291A, which but for the provisions of this article, another insurer would otherwise have been obligated to pay. Who else is paying a Section 32 if we're not doing it? The answer is nobody, uh, because believe it or not, the Department of Financial Services Office of General Counsel has actually prohibited no-fault settlements as against public policy, uh, except for indemnity, and even then there's a specific form and specific circumstances and releases that have to be entered into. And by the way, if, if we're gonna argue that that's an analog, okay, well then we, any portion of the Section 32 beyond $2,000 is still enforceable. Um, but it's actually prohibited as against public policy. If you're asking yourself why, well, that's to avoid, you know, Geico calling up a claimant that just got hurt in a motor vehicle accident and saying, how would you like five grand to not send me any bills? Well, they would have had 50,000 available, uh, but they just got rid of it. So no fault settlements are actually against public policy in the state of New York. So what other carrier is obligated to pay it? We're not even obligated to pay it. It's not a compulsory benefit. It's a, it's a voluntary agreement which takes me to the next portion of the issue with Section 32s. It's not a compulsory benefit. It is completely voluntary. Elsewhere within the workers' comp law and within the no-fault law, it says the carrier shall pay, and there's a method of calculating the benefits that would be owed. There are situations where the benefits are owed, you know, um, work-related medical treatment. You know, it's all prescribed by statute. And it's not voluntary, right? If the claimant has proof of a disability in a compensable accident, we are paying it. The board is going to direct us to pay temporary disability. We're also gonna pay that doctor for their bills within the fee schedule. Not a section 32. This says may, the parties may enter into an agreement settling compensation. So it's not a compulsory benefit. Nobody's obligated to pay this. There's no method of calculating it under the law. Remember we talked about um, $2,000 per month for not more than three years, necessary, necessary medical treatment for the first year. Um, how do you arrive at the value of a Section 32 statutorily? Doesn't give you a schedule loss of use table that tells you, you know, the arm is worth 312 weeks. Um, it, there's actually no method of calculating it. It is a lump sum that is arrived at by the parties arbitrarily. If you're asking yourself, well, what about an MSA? Isn't that a calculation? Still, that is an amount the parties are agreeing to that is, uh, you know, maybe we obtain CMS approval, but it is still an amount that is being paid that didn't have to be paid, um, that is not prescribed by statute, that is not reimbursing a provider. It is going to the claimant. So uh, note that arguing for a lien on Section 32 settlements only matters if we have paid under $50,000 or a little over. So um, if we satisfied the 50K threshold early on and then we settled the workers' comp case later, obviously we're gonna have a lien on amounts we paid beyond 50K. So where would this come up? Um, let's say you only paid 10,000 in comp, you got a $30,000 Section 32 settlement. 
Uh, you have, that hasn't gotten you to the 50K threshold. Uh, most plaintiff's attorneys are gonna tell you you do not have a lien because you have not paid over 50K. I would be arguing for a lien on that $30,000. I would be arguing I get back about 20, and we have done that every single time, uh, and we will continue to make that argument until a decision comes out that says we can't. Um, so I would uh, absolutely be making that argument as to Section 32 settlements. So recommendations for maximizing recovery in New York before we hop to New Jersey. Uh, if we have already paid over 50K, it's usually not worth it to argue the exception unless we're close to 50K, meaning that you know, you're at 51, 52, anything under 55, something like that. Um, and a part of the first 50K was a Section 32 settlement. If we're already over 50, I don't, and you know, the comp case has been ongoing for several years. We've paid $100,000, now there's a Section 32. I don't know why you would get into arguing about whether it's in lieu of first party benefits. At that point, nobody's gonna dispute that you're over the 50K and you're entitled to reimbursement on it. So uh, if we have yet to pay 50K, make sure past and future benefits are actually subject to the carve out. They're actually paid in lieu of first party benefits, which another insurer would otherwise have been obligated to pay. Note the other carve-out exceptions, some examples, an out-of-state accident, if the accident happens anywhere outside the state of New York, the 50K carve-out's not applicable. Uh, a non-covered defendant, 5104 only bars suits against covered persons or between covered persons. Um, not a motor vehicle, for instance, motorcycles are excluded from the definition of a motor vehicle under the statute. Not use or operation, we kind of talked about that. Um, just a mention on intercompany loss transfer here, uh, if any vehicle in the accident, any vehicle at all, and what I mean by that is, you know, let's say the, our, our tortfeasor defendant runs a red light, uh, T-bones, you know, our driver and our car spins out of control and bumps into, you know, a tow truck that's parked on the side of the road. Good enough. That's involvement. So if any vehicle involved in the accident weighs over 6,500 pounds unloaded or is used for hire, for transportation of people or property, meaning somebody is paying this truck or the company that owns this truck to move property or people from point A to point B. The example I always give is a pizza place delivering its own pizzas does not qualify. You are not hiring the driver, you are paying the pizza place and they are offering that service as part of their pizza company. Um, but if you have a for hire vehicle for transportation of people or property or one that weighs over 6,500 pounds, you can seek intercompany loss transfer arbitration against the at-fault driver's carrier to recover the first 50K, which would otherwise be unrecoverable. We wouldn't have a lien on it. So all loss transfer allows you to do, it's, it's not technically subrogation. The claimant has no right to make that claim in, in arbitration. They don't assign that right to us. There's no required notice beyond the intercompany reimbursement notification. It is just a creature of statute between insurance carriers. And what it allows you to do is, uh, provided that there is an at-fault driver, that is the thing here, loss transfer is just a negligence claim in, ar in arbitration, it is not strict liability. Provided you have an at-fault driver, you can get back that first 50K. If liability is 100%, say there's a summary judgment um, in favor of the plaintiff in the third party action, if liability is a slam dunk 100%, what's great about loss transfer is that it's potentially dollar for dollar you'll get back the first 50K instead of two thirds of 50K. So that's a way to maximize recovery in New York is uh, assessing for loss transfer on all of your motor vehicle accident cases. You would be surprised how many carriers and self-insureds we see that uh, aren't aware that that 50,000 could be recoverable from another source. 
anything paid beyond the 50, we would, we would get back approximately two thirds, assuming there's a third party settlement or judgment eventually. Uh, so we have to nav navigate the 50K carve out um, when we're using subrogation under section 29.2 as well. Uh, we don't have any rights greater than the claimants. It's only an assignment of their case, meaning uh, we can't avoid you know, this uh, bar on suing for basic economic loss by stepping into the claimant's shoes. In fact, section 29.2a addresses exactly that. Uh, why am I bringing this up? Well, because it's actually the opposite situation in New Jersey. So before we turn to New Jersey, let's just talk about our last overlap here. We've been talking a lot about, about recovery. What about exposure? So what happens when the workers' comp carrier should have paid but didn't? Remember we said comp is primary to basically every form of coverage, health insurance, no fault, et cetera. So we know that when the comp carrier should have paid health insurance benefits, uh, you'll see what's called a uh, HIMP-1 reimbursement request, which comes from the health insurance matching program. We have several webinars on that topic. If you're curious, feel free to check them out or uh, post a question and um, go to webinar. I'm always happy to talk about HIMPs, but that's how a health insurer gets reimbursed. So what about the no-fault carrier? Well, claimants usually execute an assignment of benefits that allows the provider to recover for treatment. The claimant is actually the insured, the quote-unquote policyholder. Uh, so instead of the provider billing them, the claimant paying out of pocket and then submitting a claim for reimbursement through insurance, they just assign the right to recover under the policy to their provider. So they'll execute an AOB assignment of benefits form. Um, and then sometimes you'll even see these things pop up in e-case, right? You'll see a form NF3 and you'll go, what the heck is that? And you'll click on it and we'll say, you know, providers verification of treatment or whatever. Sometimes these NF dash forms show up in e-case. Sometimes they get sent to the claims examiner. Sometimes they go to our general mailbox. Problem with the way the no-fault law works is it's tag you're it, right? If they can prove that they served it and you did not timely respond, even though workers' comp is uh, primary and even though the workers' comp board has exclusive jurisdiction over comp benefits, work-related accidents, um, you can actually still be liable for payment if you fail to timely respond. That's what the no-fault law says. That's what all the subsequent arbitration and civil decisions say. What is my recommendation? If you do nothing else, if a form shows up that says NF-something on the bottom of it, just serve them with a form NF-10. If you, if, and it has to be done within 30 days. Where can you find a form NF-10? Literally Google form NF-10. It's the first thing that comes up. It, fill out whatever you can fill out. It's basically a copy and paste from what's on the form that you received. But if nothing else, just write workers comp on it and send it out the door. That'll at least preserve the defense uh, that this is a workers' comp case. The board has exclusive jurisdiction. You don't do that, and most of your arguments go out the door, except for the question of coverage. So what we'll see happen is if a medical bill went unpaid, the provider uh, doesn't know it was a workers' comp claim, so they don't submit it through the board as they should have. You'll see a civil action or arbitration filed as the claimant's uh, assignee. Either is allowed, they are both permitted under the law, what does this usually show up as? Um, you know, provider medical practice PLLC AAO claimant versus carrier. That's what the end. Uh, that's what the case caption is going to look like. So you've probably seen a few of those over your time handling cases in New York. If it is another carrier, I'm sorry. If it is another carrier, I put the emphasis on the wrong word there. Uh, that paid lost time or medicals. They cannot pursue loss transfer against a workers' comp carrier. We cannot be a respondent to loss transfer proceedings. 
Um, so technically, the way it's supposed to work is they're supposed to get an order from the workers' comp board directing us to reimburse them. They can actually um, become a party of interest to the case and appear at a hearing and say, hey, we paid X amount in medical and X amount in lost time. This is a workers' comp case. And then we raise all of our standard arguments, right? Well, we're not responsible for that medical because it was inconsistent with the guidelines and they didn't secure a variance first. Okay, and the judge says, all right, that we're not liable for that bill. We still have the chance to raise whatever defenses we would have paid. Um, the bills are only, or would have raised, the bills are only payable to the extent that we're found liable to pay them, and we're only going to be found liable to pay them if they're compensable under the law. Um, so you'd see an order from the board directing us to reimburse the no-fault carrier for a certain amount. None of them ever do this. Uh, if you search for it, uh, you will find a handful of board panel decisions where this has happened. Um, what do they usually do in this situation? Well, sometimes they'll just send you a lien notice in the mail. Uh, other times they'll actually sue and that'll look like carrier AAO claimant uh, versus other carrier. Um, if that happens, that's actually not the worst thing because you can raise all kinds of defenses in response. This is workers' comp, you know, they have, they have primary jurisdiction. Uh, you can't sue me because insurance law prohibits suits for basic economic loss and you don't have rights greater than the claimant, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you can raise all of these defenses and then say, notwithstanding that, I'll give you 10 grand to go away uh, and then get a general release on it. You might be able to get rid of all of those no-fault medical bills for way cheaper than it would have been had you been directed to reimburse them through the board. And you can raise all your defenses in that civil case too. You can say, look at this thing called the MTGs. This guy got you know, a ton of acupuncture. I'm not responsible to pay for any of this. Uh, and it works. So it's not actually the worst thing if those cases show up. You just got to know how to negotiate them and, you know, use a little wiggle room on them. All right. Don't worry. The content for New Jersey is nowhere near as dense. We're going to blow through the rest of this. I know I've been rambling for quite a few minutes now. So background to the verbal threshold. Uh, it applies in motor vehicle accident cases in New Jersey. Uh, New Jersey first adopted a no-fault act in 1972. Um, now it arises from the New Jersey Automobile Insurance Cost Reduction Act, AKA ACRA. Uh, the goal is to reduce the cost of automobile insurance, um, prevent overtreatment, and provide some docket relief. So what actually is the verbal threshold? Well, this is a kind of a thing that's, in my experience, unique to New Jersey. So when you get auto insurance, there are two options. The limitation on lawsuit option, AKA the verbal threshold, and the no limitation on lawsuit option. Um, what do you get if you go with the limitation on lawsuit option? Cheaper premiums with a big catch. You can't sue for non-economic damages. Unlike in New York where there's an exception if you have the um, qualifying injury, if you, don't if you have the limitation on lawsuit option, there's no suit for the economic damages. But we do have a definition of serious injury under, the no under New Jersey's no-fault law, which we're going to get into in a second. Um, it is the insured's own policy that restricts their right to sue, which is the weirdest thing ever. If, you're, if your claimant or your petitioner in New Jersey has a policy that has the limitation on lawsuit option, that is what stops them from suing the other party, not the other party's uh, insurance coverage. Um, so lower premiums are advertised, their effects are not. Uh, if you live in the state of New Jersey and have motor vehicle insurance in the state of New Jersey, strongly recommend getting on the horn with your uh, carrier and saying, I would like the no limitation on lawsuit option on my policy. It's a couple couple hundred more in premium on the year, but then you can sue anybody with reckless abandon 
you know, provided they're actually at fault. Um, basic versus standard policy, I'm just bringing this up so you know the type of third-party recovery that might be available. Uh, the basic policy in, in New Jersey, um, yes, there is such a thing as not having bodily injury coverage at all, um, but there's a $10,000 option. We have uh, property damage, 15,000 in PIP per person or up to 250 for certain injuries such as critical care. Um, then there's the standard, all the other optional types, UM, UIM, collision, comprehensive, those are all optional. The standard policy has bodily injury low as 15,000 per person, uh, up to $25,000 per person, property damage is included. Um, same thing with PIP, you could go up to 50,000 for or 250,000 for certain injuries. Um, it's all uh, optional as to the other forms of coverage beyond that. Qualifying injuries, I brought these up. So the verbal threshold, you cannot sue for non-economic damages unless your injury qualifies. We have six qualifying injuries, death, dismemberment, significant disfigurement or scarring, displaced fractures, loss of a fetus, uh, and permanent injury other than scarring or disfigurement, which is a catch-all category and unsurprisingly the most limited. Notice the difference here between New York. It is not uh, a fracture, it is displaced fractures. So a hairline fracture in um, your pinky toe bone is not gonna be enough in New Jersey. Um, so how this usually ends up working out in New Jersey is that uh, you can't sue for non-economic loss, uh, AKA pain and suffering. That's typically what is raised as non-economic loss. Um, you can't sue unless you're able to prove one of these um, qualifying injuries if you have the limitation of lawsuit option on your policy. Um, the catch-all category, the one that I said is the most litigated, if it's a soft tissue injury like to the back or something you know, of that nature, the best way to think about it is a disc bulge isn't gonna get you in, a herniation probably will. Um, this is analogous to New York's definition of a serious injury in the insurance law. You can't sue for non-economic damages unless there's a qualifying injury, but we just talked about the little difference between them. The effect on the litigation, which matters for the third party action. So the verbal threshold only bars the suit for non-economic damages. Again, that's typically pain and suffering. What happens if the PIP is inadequate to cover uh, economic damages? You can still sue for economic damages, including lost wages, medical costs, uninsured property damage. That is not barred by the verbal threshold. So notice how that differs from New York. New York, you can't sue for basic economic loss at all. Uh, you can sue for non-economic loss if you have a qualifying injury. In New Jersey, you can sue from dollar one, you just can't recover for non-economic loss. All right, what well, we're all here for, the overlap with comp, right? So this lovely decision that I've talked about in prior webinars, New Jersey Transit Corp, ASO, McCulgliano versus Sanchez, it's an appellate division decision from 2018. In a subrogation action, the carrier's rights are governed by the Workers' Comp Act, not the Automobile Insurance Cost Reduction Act. Uh, so the carrier is entitled to reimbursement from tortfeasors, even though the employee would not be able to recover medical expenses and wage loss from his own automobile insurer or non-economic damages from tortfeasors. This actually gets affirmed by an equally divided Supreme Court in New Jersey in 2020. Um, if you think about it, this is quite crazy, right? We actually, we actually, thanks to this decision, have rights that are somewhat greater than what the petitioner has. If they have the limitation on lawsuit option in their policy, unless they got a qualifying injury, they are not gonna be able to sue for non-economic loss. If they sue for economic loss, guess what? We paid for that, so we're gonna get reimbursed for it. Um, but what the appellate division said and what the Supreme Court upheld 
is that workers' comp trumps uh, ACRA, and therefore, if we are subrogating under Section 40F, we are not subject to the verbal threshold that is on our petitioner's policy. So we can actually sue in some cases in New Jersey where our petitioner couldn't. So what is your, what is your trigger in your New Jersey cases? Again, soft tissue injury type cases with relatively low exposure. I can promise you no civil attorney is taking that case. There's not a big enough fee. They might lose on the verbal threshold issue depending on their client's policy. But that doesn't stop you from serving a 40F assignment notice uh, and then serving a written demand on the adverse carrier saying, hey, wouldn't you love to pay me you know, my 15,000 in comp instead of giving this guy 50,000? Um, you can step in and subrogate and not just wave bye-bye to that money. Again, it should be within reason. You know, if you paid less than 5K on the case, is it going to be worth your time to draft and file a complaint and then serve it and litigate? No, um, it's a judgment call kind of thing. But just keep that in mind. There are plenty of motor vehicle accident cases in New Jersey where the petitioner will not sue because he can't, and you actually can. So file that away. Um, note the critical difference here. In New York, we can't uh, avoid the serious injury threshold simply by subrogating under Section 29.2. Um, just note in New Jersey, there's nothing really analogous to intercompany loss transfer. Remember we talked about that, that's recovering the first 50K paid in lieu of first party benefits. Uh, since there's no carve out to our section 40 lien recovery in the first place. We have a lien from dollar one in MVA cases in New Jersey, in other words. Um, and the proof of the injuries used in these civil cases, uh, whether to prove the verbal threshold or a serious injury, um, those can actually be useful in defending the workers comp case. You'd be surprised what they say to doctors to be able to sue civilly that you might be able to hold against them. So it's always a good idea to take a peek at these dockets anyway. All right, I think our last slide before we'll hop into questions here. So what happens in New Jersey if uh, comp should have paid but didn't? So in New Jersey, the workers' comp carrier typically does not get served with these tag your it no fault forms that we have in New York that I talked about. Um, that can bind them to coverage if they fail to respond, but comp is still primary to no fault. So what typically happens is that through an agent, and you may see these in your claim file, you may see these come through the door, it'll say the Rawlings company at the top, and it'll tell you, hey, we've noticed this is a workers' comp case, we paid this guy X and medical pay us back. Um, so a no-fault carrier or health insurer will serve a reimbursement demand, uh, typically through an agent, and like I mentioned, Rawlings company is a very common example. Um, so when the workers' comp case settles, I, we finally have some money moving here. Uh, the amount paid in no fault or health benefits are asserted as a lien on the workers' comp settlement. If we actually should have paid, like we dropped the ball here, um, and this was totally compensable, this was authorized treatment, we just ignored the bill, right? Um, we actually may pay additional money on top of the settlement value itself, um, but if our liability for payment is disputed, typically we're gonna hash this out with the adversary and come up with a split of the costs. Maybe we do it 75-25, maybe it's 50-50, who knows. Um, but it's worked out with the adversary, you know, the amount that is gonna be deducted from the settlement and reimbursed to the uh, no-fault carrier. Um, and then the breakdown is usually ref reflected on page two of the settlement order. Uh, again, that's just something you're going to hash out with your adversary in advance. So a little uh, simpler in New Jersey. We have a few more options. All right. With that, let's see if we got any questions before we wrap up for this month. Uh, is the PowerPoint available? 
Um, yes. Uh, send me, um, if you could, Karen, send me an email to cmajor at loisllc.com, no hyphens, cmajor at loisllc.com. Uh, it's not going to be particularly pretty because, as you can see, we use a, a green screen format. Um, so it's just going to be the bullet points that we had, but um, you know, I'm happy to uh, forward them along if you uh, find that helpful. Otherwise, I can talk about this stuff all day. So if you ever want to pick up the phone and call me with a question or shoot me an email, I'm always happy to do that. So that was the only question we had. With that, we're going to wrap up. I'll see everyone next month. Uh, thanks for tuning in.